Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Today we're going to be talking about the thousand years of Revelation 20. Let me ask you this, what number seems so large to you that it's almost unfathomable? What number seems so large to you that it's almost unfathomable? I know I can remember as a kid, uh, you know, growing up in the 70s, uh, uh, I can remember hearing people talk about millions and thinking, I can't even fathom that. And yet millions are more common today than ever before, especially when you're speaking of dollars and we're talking about billions. And unfortunately, we're even speaking of trillions in some instances. But those numbers baffle me. They just get to where it's just another zero on the wrong side of the decimal point. I don't, you know, I don't comprehend that. I think we think about a thousand years that way when we think about a thousand years. It just... It expands so far beyond who we are and and how long we exist on this earth. I mean, not many people live as long as my great-grandmother lived. Uh, She uh, was born and raised in North Louisiana, and and, um, she died just a few months shy of her 107th birthday. She was tough, and uh, her name was Mama Watson, And if you ask Mama Watson, her favorite sport was boxing. Her favorite boxer, Sugar Ray Leonard, because couldn't nobody beat that boy. He could whoop everybody. That was her, like, as a kid and as a teenager, I would go over and sit with Mama Watson. Uh, She lived with my grandparents the last few years of her life. And I would great-grandparents sit. I guess that's what you would call it. And we'd watch... Boxing, if there wasn't a boxing match on, we watched Mid-South Wrestling. So Mama Watson gave me my love for wrestling. And yes, wrestling is the way Mid-South pronounced it. Mama Watson, what is your secret to longevity? Love the Lord and eat fried chicken, fried in lard. It worked for her. A thousand years. For many, it's just too much to really take in because it just seems even more than so much of even studying history uh, can really give credibility to. You know, last week as we began to wind down our study in Revelation in the last number of chapters, chapter 19, we saw that a party broke out in heaven over Christ's victorious return. The rider on the white horse re-enters, and we see that's the second coming of Jesus Christ. Well, in succession today, we see not only a party that has broke out in heaven, but now a people who will reign and rule with Christ on the earth. And what I want you to see today is that Jesus is coming again soon in power and glory to rule the earth with his people And he will judge all who reject him. I'm going to break the sermon up today in three sections. And we're going to look at three promises that God will fulfill with finality in the millennium. For the glory of his eternal kingdom. 
And then right at the end, I'm going to conclude with three very practical applications for us to live ready with urgency and priority today. Let's go to verse 1 of chapter 20. I'm going to begin by reading the first six verses, and then we'll continue. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the obeying, and the understanding of his word today. Revelation chapter 20 may be the most unique chapter in all of Scripture because of its topic, the millennium. A topic never mentioned nor referenced in any other part of the Bible. And by unique, I don't mean to say that it is in any way more important than any of the others or all of the others. Rather, just to recognize the singularity of where this topic is dealt with in the Scriptures. So often when a A topic comes up in a passage of Scripture, there are typically other passages that at least refer to, if not explicitly teach on a topic, so that you can compare passages and have a more full understanding. But that's not so with the millennium. This is the single place where it is addressed. And this becomes even more important when you consider that through history, this topic has significantly determined how people approach the whole interpretation of Revelation, even really, in many ways, the interpretation of the whole Bible. But what we can say this morning is this, that John intends for us to see Revelation 20 as following the second coming of Jesus, what we saw in Revelation chapter 19. And so I want us to have a more full consideration of the millennial Because I believe that will be helpful at this point. Excuse me. A more full consideration of the millennium. It's not going to help anybody to do a more full consideration of millennia. Millennials. (laughs) That would have been funny if I'd gotten it out the first time. But I'm with you. It just didn't land very well. Let's begin by considering this question. I'm going to ask a couple of questions to frame our study of the millennium. And the first one is this, what is it? What is the millennium? Well, we learn in this passage that the millennium is a period where an angel comes down from heaven with a great key 
and a great chain and binds Satan for a thousand years, throws him into the bottomless pit where he is sealed for a thousand years. And the purpose of his imprisonment, it tells us, is so he cannot deceive the nations any longer for a thousand years. Then, after the thousand years, he will be released for a little time. Now, during this time, Satan is inactive. But the saints of God are activated. What we see in verse 4 and 5 as the first resurrection, the saints of God are resurrected, activated, and returned to earth to reign with Christ on the earth. John tells us that he saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. And John's vision includes all the saints of Jesus Christ who had died across all of the ages and now they are resurrected to life with him to reign for a thousand years. And then he says this is the first resurrection. It is a time that includes all believers of all the ages. This is, if you will, Jesus' fulfillment of his promise in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, when he says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it here. It is found. That's what we understand, friends. And all who participate in the first resurrection, verse 6, says are blessed. Why? Because they will never experience the second death. They will never experience the second death. Instead of the second death, we will move from the millennium into eternal life where we are reigning and judging and ruling with Christ during this time on earth and then moving into eternity with him in heaven. Now, surprise of all surprises, this is debated. Not surprising, right? Fortunately, I'm going to clear up the debate today. <laughs> Big promise, I know. Three words are used that that virtually mean the same thing, to reign, to rule, to judge. And they tell us that we will fulfill basically God's creational mandate in the renewed order where the curse of sin is non-existent. Now, the curse of sin remains during the millennium, but after it will become non-existence. What doesn't exist during the millennium is the active work of Satan to deceive the nations. And so as we are reigning and ruling and judging with Christ in the millennium, sin is still present, but its source is not cultivating it. Where is it present? In the nature and in the deeds of people that remain on the earth. We have not moved into a perfected state as of yet. And those who do not believe in Christ, who have not passed from this life, are still on the earth in this time. So my point is simply to say sin still has a presence on the earth what it doesn't have is a cheerleader, a coach, and a general manager to call the shots. It's originating from those within whom it already exists. What the millennium will provide, though, is an even greater foretaste of 
glory divine. That's a reference to a hymn there that we sing. When we speak of glory divine as being, or the foretaste of glory divine as being a, a taste of what it's like to live with God as a Christian. He takes up his habitation within us as Christians when he puts his spirit within us. He tabernacles, if you will, within us. And and all of a sudden, we as his followers become the temple of the Holy Spirit where he resides. There is a foretaste of glory divine. But in the millennium, when Christ returns and he rules with his people, there is a greater, more full expression of glory divine in that. It's more complete than what we experience today, while at the same time, it is not yet the full eternal state of heaven. And while sin will still be present, Because there will be people on earth who are not saved. Satan's active presence and work in the world is absent. Now this will be clarifying. This will be clarifying. How so? Well, that little little phrase we sometimes use, the devil made me do it. Not in the millennium. Not in the millennium. You will be exposed and, and that excuse will be no good. Now, if like the little kid uh, who, when my sister years ago was a children's minister at a church and he kept acting up in class, he was a first or second grader and, and my sister took him out of the hall and said, little Billy, why do you keep doing this? He said, oh, Miss Laurie, I'm so sorry. I got the devil in my heart. <laughs> it's her favorite story to tell. Some of you are gonna be exposed as having the devil in your heart. Because Satan will not be active in this. You see, what we're seeing here is that Christ's sovereign authority over Satan will be perfectly demonstrated for a thousand years. And there will be an unhindered opportunity for people who are experiencing the righteous rule and reign of God through Jesus Christ to believe and to receive him. And for a long period, it will be obvious, and I love the way that my uh, former college professor and scholar Scott Duvall said this. It will be obvious that Satan is God's opponent but he is not God's opposite. Let us be careful even today in believing this, that we do not attribute to Satan the same qualities and attributes that are equal to God in opposition to him. He is not equal to God, and the millennium will prove that with finality. God reveals one last time to show the nations who have rebelled against him that he is the only one who is sovereign and he is sovereign over Satan, the deceiver, so that they can believe in him. And as we've seen continually, yet so many will not believe. They will continue in their rebellion. They will continue as enemies of God in their sin, they will continue in the hardness of their heart to maybe ever so silently but still reject him and live as prey 
to Satan's deception. You see, in the millennium, God's justice will be manifested as people live in the reality of his righteousness in both his rule and reign. But even some will continue to deny and reject him. Will people be saved in the millennium? Absolutely, people will be saved. Many people will be saved, I believe, because of the righteous rule and reign of Jesus Christ. But not all. And obviously, it tells us here, it won't be easy either. Because people will not only have to overcome Satan's activity, but they will have to deny themselves in repenting of their sin. Friends, that's true of you and I today. Some of you don't have a problem getting over Satan's authority and influence in your life. Some of you struggle with getting over you as being on the throne of your life. That may be, may be the greatest challenge to any of us coming to faith in Jesus Christ is denying self. That's why Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And so it shall be in the millennial as well. A second question we should ask, is this a literal thousand year period of time or something else? I personally find this question especially important when one considers the bookend on redemptive history. Bookends meaning Genesis to Revelation and the story that we have of God's redemptive work within history. The Bible begins and ends with passages of major debate over time. The Bible's not debating them. People are debating the Bible. But the Bible is not unclear, friends. In Genesis, there is a debate regarding a literal versus a figurative days of 24-hour periods. And I've spoken to this a number of times, preached on it several years ago. I believe this is the lasting condemnation on our thinking about God that the theory of evolution has left with us. We think that those are all figurative language in Genesis chapter 1. They don't have to mean what we understand as 24-hour periods because what idiot believes the earth could only be less than 10 to 12,000 years old? Just so we're all clear. Especially when there's Zero evidence on the other side to prove otherwise. In Revelation, see, I'm already getting hung up on a debate. In Revelation, the debate is over whether it's a literal thousand years or simply an extended period. And the argument often goes like this. If one of them is literal, then the other must be as well. Now, I mention these debates because I find them correlating and helpful in our reading today. And because we don't have time to unpack both of them, I'm going to provide the short answer that I think is still helpful in this way. 
Genesis makes clear from the text to establish a literal day or what we came to know of as a 24-hour period by the repeated phrase at the end of each day when it said, and there was evening and morning the first day. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. It is teaching us that there is a beginning and an ending to every day. And you go, but wait a minute, shouldn't it have been there's morning and evening? No, in the Hebrew frame of mind, a day began in the evening. And so the, the day, and even if you go measure the time and look at, at the way that time is calculated with Christ's crucifixion, you have to calculate back beginning with the evening being the beginning of the day. You go to Israel, Sabbath begins on Friday evening with dinner and goes until Saturday evening. That's the way it still works. And what Genesis does is very clear. It, it, it constitutes what we have come to know of as a 24-hour day with every day of creation. Why? This is critical because in Genesis, God is introducing something that's never been known. It's what is so familiar and confining to us called time. I was having a conversation this week and I said, I don't care how big you come, how important you ever become, you're just like the rest of us. You have 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You don't get more. That's what God establishes in Genesis, friends. That's where he introduces the concept of time where the movement and the markers of history get recorded. That's what Genesis is all about. Now, when we come to the other end of the books, the bookend, if you will, Revelation also has a distinct literary genre and historical epoch, period, or age. As identified from the beginning, this is a book of apocalyptic and prophetic writing where numbers have symbolic meaning more than only a literal measuring. You understand what I'm saying there? We've talked about the number seven, the number 10, the number 12. We talked about 144,000 and how it is the, uh, the squaring of 12,000. So 12,000 times 12,000 is 144,000. How it is the representation of perfection and completeness. And so we have the same thing here with the 1,000. So when we approach the number 1,000, we have the number that is equal to the third power of 10, 10 times 10 times 10, that represents this idea of wholeness and completeness. And when you consider the placement of revelation in God's eternal plan, the millennium concludes the historical marking of time in the transition into eternity. So what we see in chapter 20, when Revelation chapter 20 ends, time ceases. When God introduces time in Genesis, that was evening and morning the first day. When he concludes it in Revelation, it shall be no more. That's why I start with the idea of what's a number that seems 
impossible to calculate in our mind because in so many ways where we're moving in the text here is beyond the capacity of human intellect to fully comprehend because we in this life are confined by time. But God is not. God is not. Time is like a scribble of the book of God that he places in the doodling of history to show us who he is. And when he says, I'll put Satan in the abyss for a thousand years and he will have no presence, no work, and no opportunity to deceive, he will be sealed there until I say otherwise. It's because God's not bound by what we are bound by. His intellect is not bound by the same confinements that ours are. He is wholly other than us. And when we study his otherness, we should be careful that we don't offer him our box to live in. Revelation 20 marks the cessation of time. And from this, we rightly conclude that the millennium is an actual, real, and lengthy period of time. Understand that. I'm not saying it's not a measurement of time. It is an actual, real, and lengthy period of time, but not necessarily a literal thousand years measured by the watch and the calendar that you and I live by today. But pastor, some may respond, I thought you were a literalist in biblical interpretation. I am as a foundational principle. And I'm not denying that principle here. I like the way Alistair Begg puts it. I don't have the Scottish drawl that he has, so forgive me. I wanna try, but my wife says that sounds nothing like it, so stop. So I'll just stay with my higher speech impediment of South Arkansas English. Alistair Begg says, the plain thing is the main thing, and the main thing is the plain thing when you read the Bible. And this is what I exercise both in the Genesis example and here in Revelation. You see, being literalist never means being literalistic, a reduction of the literature in order to accomplish some other end. A literal approach recognizes the genre to interpret according to the author's purpose in using a particular genre. And this is never more important than in Revelation. We've talked about that from the beginning of our study as well. So in the millennium, God tells of an extended time where his justice and judgment is revealed as all his people of all the ages reign with him as victorious. And unbelievers who are alive see and live and experience the reality of God's righteous rule. Yet some will still reject him. Now, let me pause on the sermon for a moment to say this. Not everyone understands the millennium in the same way. Shocker, I know. I'll tell you the camps. There are some who are right. And then there are the rest. 
and you knew where I was headed with that from the beginning. That's my reprieve from the heaviness for a moment. And while I don't want to make light in order to infer that this is not an important doctrine, I'm not trying to do that. I will say this. One's perspective of the millennial is a secondary matter, not one to break fellowship over, though plenty do that. Good, solid Christian scholars, pastors, and followers of Jesus differ on what is basically broken into three main views, post-millennialism, amillennialism, and pre-millennialism. You say, why are you just telling us this now at the end of this chapter, or at the end of this study, towards the end of it? Well, I'm not going to go into these three today. I am going to schedule a time later what will become more of a study and a discussion of how to approach Revelation. I'm telling you these today, though, and not I haven't told you them earlier, because what so often happens wrongly is that someone takes their theological construct and lays it over the Bible instead of taking the Bible and laying it over the theological construct. You should never do that, friends. And even if you, and I would argue you should, hold theological constructs because they are good, they help us understand God, they should always be in submission to the text, not in authority over. And you should be able to recognize the strengths and the weaknesses of your points and of other people's as well. That's why I've approached the entire study the way I have. As I mentioned, I will host a time later just to discuss in greater detail a time of discussing how it is that I believe it's best to approach Revelation and these views. And I'll also tell you at that time where the rapture occurs. (laughs) I'm having a lot of fun today. I'm sorry. And then some of you won't like me anymore. Here's where we come to the first promise that God fulfills with finality in the millennium for the glory of his eternal kingdom. Promise one is this. God will resurrect his people who will reign with him for a thousand years as his priests of whom the second death has no power. Amen? Absolutely amen. Friends, the eternal destiny of every soul is determined while that person lives on this earth. And what they do with Jesus Christ. Consider the blessing of verse 6. That reminds us those twice born by water and by spirit. Meaning born again. Only face physical death. And the second death has no power over them. Those born only once by water. Must face the second death. Of sole importance for every person is simply to know this. Have you been born again by the Holy Spirit of God? Friends, if you don't have that question settled in your heart and mind, with deep conviction today, nothing else in life matters until this gets settled. I'm not saying your life is unimportant. I'm saying your eternal destiny is not settled. Settle it today. Not because of what I say, Not because of what we as a congregation would say, but because of what God has said in his word here. 
settled today to be born again by the work of the Holy Spirit of God in you. That your name might be written in the Lamb's book of life. And twice born, you'll only die once. Verse 7. Chapter 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Following the millennium, God will release Satan to do what he's not been able to do to deceive the nations. Once released, he immediately returns to work of deceiving the nations and his reach will extend, it tells us, over the whole earth to the corners of the four corners of the earth. There's a, that's a reference, a phrase that says there will not be one square inch of the earth that is not covered by his influence and immediate upon his release. Gog and Magog is a reference to the wicked nations that existed during the millennium that are now gathered for battle by Satan upon his release. And I love how one scholar so helpfully comments in saying, apparently a thousand years of confinement did not alter Satan's plans, nor does a thousand years of freedom from influence of wickedness change people's basic tendency to rebel against their creator. We talked about it last week in moving towards Armageddon. Everybody enters the game thinking they're going to win. Satan came out of the abyss thinking, all right, now it's my turn to pull off a W. Just wasn't going to happen. But it tells us that their number was so overwhelming in count and it was compounded by the description. It says here that When they came out towards the four corners of the earth, their number was like the sand of the sea and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth. Basically, what it's telling us is as far as the eye could see in every direction, the horizon was just filled with Gog and Magog, the the nations of the earth whom Satan was summoning to come and fight again against Jesus. So there's this essence of the overwhelming, compounding reality of the nations of the earth who remain in their hard rebellion against God who are writing as if they've got a chance. That's the descriptive intent of the image. To overwhelm by number and to surround what it calls the camp of the saints and the beloved city. That's, that's all the believers who've been resurrected and, and have been ruling with Christ upon the earth. And just as their victory and just as the doom of the camp appears inevitable, fire falls from heaven. <laughs> I, I love the imagery, friend. I mean, it was overwhelming. It says, fire falls from heaven and consumes the whole of them. And instantly, the devil is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur with the beast and the false prophet. 
to be tormented day and night for eternity. You know what I love about this is God doesn't even use his first string. He sent an angel. Here's the key and pick that chain up. Go take care of them. Like, like, like he sent that is at least the second string. Maybe the third or fourth string in. God is not concerned about Satan. God is not threatened by Satan. And he is in no way worried as to whether he will be victorious over Satan. Because just like that, Satan's final and eternal defeat is done. His fate is settled. Here's the second promise that God fulfills with finality in the millennium for the glory of his eternal kingdom. Promise number two, God will demonstrate his sovereign power over Satan by executing his final sentence to eternal torment forever and ever. Predictable and unimpressive. That's the best description of the battle of Gog and Magog with even less fanfare than Armageddon. Think about that. We didn't think it could get any less. Actually, it does. With that, God fulfills the promise of his word sovereignly, unchallenged by the power of his word. With striking clarity and with absolute conviction and accuracy, he exacts at this moment to demonstrate his sovereignty. One final time. One more scholarly quote that I'll provide for you from Robert Mounts. He sobers us in this moment with his explanation, when he says, perhaps most reasonable explanation for this unusual parole, speaking of Satan being confined for a thousand years, is to make plain that neither designs of Satan nor waywardness of human heart will be altered by the mere passing of time. Time doesn't heal all things. Jesus does. And he says, once loosed from prison, Satan picks up where he left off and people rally to his cause. Friends, this passage provides overwhelming evidence with sobering clarity of the potency of the human will to reject God, to reject him. To stand guilty before him and completely deserving of his judgment. And I ask us today, is this you, friend? Are you holding today to a a posture of animosity towards God? To a position of, uh, of being an antagonist against or an enemy of God that sin makes you? No matter how neutral your rationale, failing to receive God in any form uh, is to align with Satan in full rebellion and condemnation. That's what this is about, friends. And so today I implore you to hear God's promise of eternal life, to believe and receive the work of Jesus Christ, to repent of your sin, to deny yourself. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, to trust in him. Finally, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Once God wins the war of Gog and Magog, all the rest of the dead are resurrected to the great white throne judgment. We saw this introduced in verse 5 when it tells us that, um, um, let me find verse 5 here, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So that's a precursor of what is to come in verses 11 through 15. Time as we know it has passed away. And everyone who was not raised in the first resurrection is now raised to join all who were still alive but did not confess Christ as Lord. And together they stand before the great white throne to be eternally judged. It tells us that on the bench of the great white throne, books are opened. Doesn't tell us how many doesn't tell us anything else about them, but that they are open. And next to them is one book, the book of life. It too is opened. And it tells us that the dead are judged what was writ- by what was written in the books because their name was not found in the book of life. Friends, no one is so important as to be immune from judgment. And no one is so unimportant as to make judgment inappropriate upon their life. For at the great white throne judgment, it will not be arbitrary, but it will be based on evidence written by the life of every person, recorded in the books upon the great white throne bench, if one's name is not recorded in the book of life. Friends, here's what you should know. When God knows your name, when that name is recorded in the book of life, your deeds will not be found in the books because you've already been judged by Christ's work for you. That's why your name is in the book of life. When God does not know your name, you will be judged by the evidence of your deeds which no matter how the scales balance your good deeds from your bad deeds, your supposedly self-righteous deeds from your self-unrighteous deeds, which are not two categories, they're all one, just to be clear. You will be judged by the evidence of those which will never measure up and always end in judgment to eternal condemnation at the great white throne judgment death and hades are thrown into the lake of fire with all who are judged by their deeds for the second death and with this the theme of judgment on evil finds its final expression with this vision we close forever the chapter on sin and stand ready to enter eternal glory Here's God's third promise that he will fulfill with finality in the millennium for the glory of his eternal kingdom. God will judge every person whose name is not written in the book of life according to what they have done and throw them into the lake of fire for the second death. Friends, there is a somberness at this moment in the text. 
in recognizing what has transpired. For God's invitation to believe and repent that we've traced since Revelation chapter 6, since the introduction of the judgments began, by his warning through an increasing and an advancing, through an accelerating and an escalating judgment, that all comes to an end right here. And the opportunity ends at the second death. And yet we hear this today. A day while opportunity still remains. Friends, today I I long for every person who has not believed on Jesus to repent of their sins and put their trust in him. To follow him as Lord and to do so today. There, There are no excuses offered with the deeds listed in the books. Why? Because Romans 1 tells us we stand before God without excuse. There won't be a defense attorney here. Only the judge passing sentence. And I long today for every Christ follower whose name is written in the book of life to be simultaneously overwhelmed with joy and peace at God's sure and certain promise such that the way we live today is distinctively different from anything that we would have lived on our own. Compelled by the love that knows the deeds that should have been recorded here. And for no good earthly reason other than Christ himself, our name was written here. Friends, if that doesn't fill you with hope, you have nothing that can hold hope. Today's message is not one of doom and gloom, but of urgency and priority. For every person to believe on Jesus and be saved while opportunity remains. And every Christ follower to submit their whole life to serve the gospel and to make Jesus known for the salvation of every person. For Jesus is coming again soon in power and glory to rule the earth with his people and to judge all who reject him. And I told you we would conclude today with three practices of application in order that we might live ready, live ready while time remains. I'll cover these very very quickly. Number one, surrender your whole life completely to Jesus today. What are you waiting on? What are you looking for? You've already seen the end. That will be determined by what you do with Jesus today. Number two, submit your whole life completely every day to Jesus' lordship. Denying ourselves is not a one-time threshold into the kingdom of God. It is a daily practice. Where Jesus says, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Christian, have you taken up the cross of Jesus Christ in denial of yourself today, tomorrow, and every day? And number three, share the gospel with as much zeal and with as many people as possible today. Because the king is coming again soon. Let's pray.